After the last waltz in November of 1976, the band ostensibly continued to exist as a non-touring entity. Apparently, the idea was that the ensemble would continue to churn out studio albums. Simply, they had no desire to tour any longer. However, doubt was setting in. Would they just stop touring, or would they cease being a group? It was difficult to wade through the various accounts of the period, with Robertson officially all but calling it a day and pivoting his career to Hollywood. The rest of the band saw the writing on the wall. Robertson wasn't just going to back out and let the group carry on without him. He wanted to put what he believed was his group to bed, regardless of whether or not the rest of the band wanted to. To be fair, Levon, Garth, Rick, and Richard didn't put up much of a fight. Levon, the most outspoken, knew that he was outmaneuvered by Robertson and that the army of lawyers, accountants, and record label executives would have convalesced around Robbie, thus the group began to pivot. Rick Danko signed a record deal with Arista Records, the first to jump ship. You even see him work on eventual material for his first solo outing in The Last Waltz. Levon Helm wasn't far behind with a deal he struck with ABC Records, with his old friend Henry Glover. Richard Manuel was struggling, however. Given his addiction and mental health issues, the last thing he needed was his routine being taken away from him. He continued to live in a cabana on the Shangri-La property for some time post-Last Waltz, and Garth made his logical choice of getting involved with session playing. Hudson was an in-demand player. He busied himself with work on albums by Beach Boy, Blondie Chaplin, a newcomer Hearth Martinez, and former Levon Helm partner Libby Titus. Now, Robertson ran into a snag. With a deal to distribute The Last Waltz via Warner Brothers Records, Capitol Records was owed one more album. Remember, the band had signed a massive eight-album deal with Capitol in 1967 and were contractually obligated to provide another album. Thus, Islands was born. Assembling in the studio at various points during 1976 through 1977, the band put together a plan for Islands. It was later described by Robbie as being similar to the Who's Odds and Sods album. In essence, it was a hodgepodge of older recordings along with some newer cuts that would get them over the hump. Much more couldn't be expected. The focus was no longer on the band, the hostilities and division were setting in, and burnout was a major factor. Regardless, the band assembled a competent team to make the album. No longer needing or wanting a traditional producer, the group opted for a steady engineer to help record. In this case, a few were brought on. Shangri-La's Rob Fabroni, a band steady, was one of those engineers. Along him, Nat Jeffries was brought in to engineer after working with Bob Dylan, Joe Cocker, and Hearth Martinez, and also being involved on the band's Northern Lights Southern Cross. Neil Brody, who had worked with Robertson on Neil Diamond's Beautiful Noise, was on board to work alongside Robbie on various tracks, and Ed Anderson, who put in work on Northern Light Southern Cross, The Last Waltz, along with records by Van Morrison, Paul Butterfield, and Hearth Martinez, as well as Neil Diamond, rounded out the sound engineering roster. And while the record included songs demoed and tried as early as 1972, a bulk of the recording happened at the band's clubhouse, Shangri-La, with additional recording happening at Los Angeles' Village Recorders. 
Now, all of the exterior distractions aside, the band were still professionals. They were incapable of putting out terrible music, and they assembled 10 tracks that were, while uneven, still packed a serious punch. The album opens with the Robertson Penn song, Right As Rain a song that Los Angeles Times critic Robert Hilburn called Elegant Romanticism, and Robert Palmer quoted Robbie as saying, A Straight Love Song. The band had a track record of strong album openers that set the pace and tone for an album. Right as Rain keeps with that practice. The song is a departure for the group. It's very laid back and easygoing. Sharing more with the rising popularity of Yacht Rock, the easy-listening, vocal-dominated soft rock that started to dominate the radio towards the end of the 1970s, is extremely present here on this song. Recorded during the rehearsals for The Last Waltz, Right as Rain proves the power and control of Richard Manuel's voice. You can hear the influence of one of his idols, Ray Charles, as he utters the words with such tenderness. When the chorus is reached, a beautiful harmony melody is added. It seems like Danko supports on the falsetto, but in a change of approach, it's possible that Manuel dubbed his own harmony, and that harmony adds a richness to the chorus. As Sam Sutherland notes in his review for High Fidelity, quote, Robbie Robertson's tendency to transform cliches into more serious conclusions seems far better served in this context than in his more abstract social commentaries. The net effect is genuinely engaging, as is Richard Manuel's warm baritone. The lyrics as referred aren't groundbreaking, but right as rain puts you in a space in which to view this album. Robertson also doesn't hide his tiredness with the group, with lyrics like, Funny how people think your life is so complete when it's really you who envies the man on the street. And paired with the vocal potent performance, a highlight of the track is Garth Hudson's contributions to multiple departments, especially the addition of the saxophone.
Now, Robertson has often stated how he struggled without the help of his bandmates when it came to songwriting. With Richard Manuel shut out from writing contributions by this point, the quality had dipped. However, by 1976, Rick Danko was starting to develop as a songwriter himself. Danko, as mentioned, was working on his debut for Arista Records and in control for the first time. Thus, he was more comfortable as a songwriter and in the studio as a producer. Streetwalker is born out of a collaboration between Danko and Robertson, which seems perfect given what both musicians wanted at the time. Occupying the second slot on the album, Streetwalker invokes all the sleek sleaze that the band had been gravitating towards starting with Cahoots. The song paints the picture of a dark urban environment that features down-and-out characters. There are parallels to earlier people that the band often write about, but now instead of rural caricatures, we find ourselves featuring those who live in the big, bad city. For those unfamiliar, a streetwalker is another name for a prostitute. The song tackles these three perspectives in different verses. First, the person seeking the affection of a hooker with, I'm looking for action, something real tight, before moving into the perspective of the streetwalker, I've been on this corner so long, and lastly, the pimp that is hustling the prostitute. Each verse paints a rather bleak portrait of their daily lives. Interestingly, the song doesn't cast these characters into good or evil archetypes. You see from their perspective the tribulations and dangers in the city and how they are all true victims in their own way. While the verses are perhaps more interesting from a storytelling perspective, the chorus structure is also interesting. Each chorus is slightly different, furthering the narrative, but features a refrain with the lyric in the city, further hammering home that theme. The chorus helps break up a rather dense and jerky nature of the verses, allowing for more breathing room. Oddly, it doesn't feature extensive harmonies you'd come to expect from other efforts. It's not easy. Moreover, the musical arrangement is big and brash and features heavy horn usage, busy piano and biting guitar. The band was also never afraid to stray from the regular rock song structure, featuring a great dual solo that heavily features Garth Hudson's saxophone as it interweaves with Robertson's staccato guitar, similar to It Makes No Difference. The piano is sourced to have come from Richard Manuel, which leads to some skepticism, Richard was an excellent player, but his style is more rhythmic and punchy. There seems to be some overdubbing from Hudson here, which James Tappenden describes as, quote, a series of wild, eccentric piano runs. And more on the rhythm, Danko and Helm hold it down very well. Danko is at his grooviest, channeling his inner James Jamerson. And it's not overcomplicated, but picks the right spots to show off.
Helm is in his element, keeping a sharp backbeat that gives Streetwalker that extra swagger and attitude. Overall, Streetwalker is a tune that defines the stylings and sensibilities of the band during their mid-70s era. It's dark, it's moody, even sexy, though critics didn't really think too kindly of it. Barney Hoskins calls the song, quote, almost unbelievably crass. It features more urban themes and down-and-out characters, sure. That is something that may have thrown the music world off, especially given the band's penance for rural themes. With the third track on Islands, we are presented with Let the Night Fall, another song in which Robbie picks up the writing credit and Richard croons. So much is said about Manuel's faltering ability during this period, but here we are again with him dominating an album with his vocal dexterity. Let the Night Fall is very much a product of the late band milieu. The song would have fit neatly onto their 1975 studio album, Northern Light, Southern Cross. As writer Nick DiRizio states, As celebrated as their journeys back into the American mythos have been, the path ultimately became dead end if you continue long enough. While this statement holds weight about Let the Night Fall, it could be aptly applied to multiple songs on islands. Robertson's lyrics are extremely simple and not overly imaginative. A clunky final verse concludes, The Lord of Wood with silent eyes, the cock screams at the first spark of dawn, is rather banal if not kind of funny. However, Robbie still uniquely writes the lyrical content for Manuel to sing. From the first words of the song, I'm the owl who stands alone, the lonesome wild I call home. Manuel is the owl, charting into the wilderness as a lone soul. The chorus is what makes this song worth a listen. A simple setup, the three-line repetition, and a slight variation with the final line, it's Manuel's vocal that makes it so contagious. His tenor is rich and yearning, and he is joined by Helman Danko on the harmony, but he also seems to do the falsetto himself, maybe another example of overdubbing. Again, showing Richard being really in a class of his own. We are also welcomed by an effects-laden guitar, and a cacophony of Hudson synth and organ tapestry. Ken Marks in his review said, quote, Hudson's organ recaptures the breezy feel of Acadian driftwood. 
and Danko keeps the baseline very loose and groovy, interlocking with Helm's kick and snare. While Let the Night Fall isn't the band at its best, it is a decent outing featuring pristine production, masterful vocal work, and tight playing. The band had made a tradition of adding a cover or two to an album throughout their career, and after an album without a cover, and in need of content to fill islands, they added Homer Banks and Willia Dean Parker's Ain't That a Lot of Love, originally released in 1966. Banks, once a staff writer for the Fame Stack Records, released the song on the New Orleans-based Minute Records, and it became a minor hit. It was regularly covered after its release, Sam and Dave, Taj Mahal, Three Dog Night and the Flying Burrito Brothers all had their own versions throughout the late 60s and early 70s. And according to critic Grail Marcus, Levon Helm, Garth Hudson, Rick Danko, alongside Neil Young, Tim Drummond, and Ben Keith had played the number, thus it was selected for the band to record. Now, Ain't That A Lot Of Love is perhaps the first track on the album that seems phoned in. While the first three tracks seem like solid efforts, nothing stands out as phenomenal with the band's cover here. The expectation is to improve upon the original, and the band had arguably done that with tracks like I Shall Be Released and Don't Do It. Helm seems completely uninterested. His vocal is a tad uninspired, especially when compared to his live version later released in 1977 with the RCO All-Stars. To add to that, the chorus harmonies are great, yet fairly uniform and standard, a tad on the polished side. A song with swagger like Ain't That A Lot Of Love deserves the looseness that the band made a career of, which makes this number confusing. Furthermore, the musical arrangement is rather dull, again lacking much energy, it comes across as rather pedestrian and filler. Even the addition of horns doesn't do much to lift the spirits of the group, and Robertson's stabbing solo is a retread of his pinched arpeggios that litter the last waltz and much of his later guitar work. As Nick DiRizio states rather bluntly in his assessment of the song, it felt like a one-off from a group ready to be anywhere else. And Grail Marcus offered in his Rolling Stone review, quote, 
the stiffest excuse for R&B I ever want to hear. Christmas Must Be Tonight is one of our first examples of a holdover from a previous period. When the band was working on their seminal comeback album, Northern Lights, Southern Cross, they threw around an idea for a Christmas song. Inspired by the birth of guitarist Robbie Robertson's son, Sebastian, Christmas Must Be Tonight was originally intended to have been a Christmas single in December of 1975. But when no one in the A&R department at Capitol got behind the idea, it was dropped from the label schedule. It was later revived for Islands. Come down to the manger See the little stranger Wrapped in swaddling Load the prince of peace The wheels start turning Torches start burning Interestingly, Christmas Must Be Tonight doesn't fit the Christmas mold. Maybe it's not surprising the band had charted their own path anyways. It's really hard to write a Christmas song. Hard to beat the classics and even harder to make a new song that people want to play on repeat as they wrap their presents. As writer Peter Viney notes about other successful Christmas songs as a model for success, Christmas Must Be Tonight is not ruckus or boozy, one recipe for a hit, nor does it lift from the classics nor sweetly sentimental, nor does it have a contemporary quasi-political message, nor is it fun along the lines of I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus or a novelty like Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree or Run Rudolph Run. What Christmas Must Be Tonight is, is intent and quite unshamedly a modern carol. Mary's Boy Child was written in the same vein and now appears in churches at carol services. And like the classic carols, it rests on a strong, beautiful, and memorable melody line. And this song is one of the best on islands. A shepherd on the hillside Where over my flock I abide On a cold winter night A band of angels sing In a dream I heard a voice It's the end of the beginning. Praise newborn king. Bassist Rick Danko leads with the vocal over Robertson's acoustic guitar. One of the only traditional aspects of the piece is that Christmas Must Be Tonight is written in the modern version of the language of King James Bible. Lyrics like, Behold wise men, journey from the east, say fear not, come rejoice praise the newborn king, emphasize this connection. They changed the Bible phrases to get away with a rhymed line here and there, and another interesting aspect of the vocal is the perspective in which it is sung. It's from a first-person viewpoint, that of one of the shepherds. 
Again, Peter Viney notes the importance of their perspective as it emphasizes the shepherds and less on the kings. The band emphasizes the humble nature, as they do in other songs in their discography, and utilize Levon's voice as a second vocalist to do this because of Levon's southern, more blue-collar charm. Danko provides a smooth, looping bass line, and Helm locks in his thumping bass drum and strong snare to cement the rhythm. Garth Hudson sits behind his Lowry organ, subtly, subtly elevating the track. Notice how he adds wonderful shimmering through the lyric, right below a star that shines on high, accentuating the piece. His organ work adds a magical flair to it, which is supremely fitting for a Christmas tune. It's also worth highlighting the vocal harmony Richard Manuel proves Richard provides that high harmony on the chorus, which is sublime, and his vocal flexibility allows him to expand upon it with Rick and Levon. Christmas Must Be Tonight is deserving of much more praise. As critic Jimmy Nelson states, quote, In a way, Christmas Must Be Tonight represents a canny distillation of what has made the band such an enduring presence. From Garth Hudson's spectral colorings to its spacious cadence to Robertson's lyric, offered from the perspective of a shepherd in that holy moment. Christmas Must Be Tonight, and maybe this doomed it from the start, would take on the same kind of emotional, direct underpinning that lifted moments like the night they drove old Dixie down in Acadian Driftwood. The second side of the record opens with the namesake track, Islands. An instrumental that is credited to Garth Hudson, Robbie Robertson, and Rick Danko, the track is excellent for what it is. Listen, the lush cadence that is no doubt mainly from Hudson is well done. The problem is, is that it's an instrumental track, something that doesn't really fit the overall album, especially opening aside. Nonetheless, as mentioned, the merits of the song are worthy. 
It was also a chance for some collaboration with outsiders. Hudson went about assembling an all-star cast of brass and other instrumentalists for the track. First, Hudson brought in Jim Gordon, not to be confused with the famed rock drummer. This Jim Gordon had played at the last waltz and was brought into the studio session to play the flute. Gordon is known for arranging and recording for Ray Charles, Delaney and Bonnie, Leon Russell, and Glenn Campbell, adding a beautiful layer to the instrumental. Tom Bones Malone was brought in to add trombone. Malone was born in Hawaii and no doubt added a tropical flair to the track. And he was no slouch either. He had played at the last waltz, but had credits with Frank Zappa, Blood, Sweat and Tears, as well as Aretha Franklin and Carly Simon. Additionally, Larry Packer came in to play the violin. Packer had made a career in session work in the folk scene with credits on albums by Jerry Jeff Walker, Tim Harden, and Judy Collins. Lastly, John Simon, a friend and original producer of the band, was brought in to play the alto saxophone. With a collection of great players, Garth flexes his musical muscles with the addition of the piccolo. While often forgotten, the beautiful piece that his islands received praise, Griel Marcus in his Rolling Stone review said, quote, The title instrumental is slight and pretty. It disarms one's desire for grand gestures and it sets a tone. The tone is one of moderation. That is almost what the best songs here are about, in their music and in the feeling they get across. And after a beautiful instrumental, we have the song The Saga of Papode Rouge. It is perhaps the most like a song you'd find on an earlier band album. Robertson's penance for storytelling lyrics were potent at one time with songs like The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down and King Harvest Has Surely Come, but in recent years suffered from driving the same structure into the ground with results that varied on songs like Shootout in Chinatown. Popote Rouge is rather confusing compared to some of the more obvious themes that were mentioned on songs previously. Rob Bauman called it a cryptic tale of mythology, and Barney Hoskins shared that sentiment. Lyrically, most of the songs in this style are based on real places, include real people. Pepote Rouge is made up. No one with that name stands out amongst history. There is a lot of guesswork to be had here. If you break down the song title, Saga refers to a folktale, a legend, or a myth. Pepote is from the word pepo, which is fruit, specifically a melon or squash. And rouge is French for red. Together, you can very quickly see that there really isn't much connection. However, as we dig deeper into the lyrical content, Robbie uses prose to elicit some images or symbols of the indigenous peoples of North America, not a stretch given his background. Moreover, there is signs of Eastern mythicism, 
via words like avatar and science fiction with references to spaceships, thematically sharing with the Northern Lights Southern Cross Jupiter's Hollow, and a whole whack of other references that could be made to the world's religions like Hinduism or even Greek mythology, which the band has focused on prior. Papote Rouge is gendered as female and positioned as a greater being or possessing of some all-knowing power. Together, this convoluted collection of words and references also feel like a potential callback to their friend Bob Dylan with their line, you don't know what you want till you find out what you need. The reverse is found in Dylan's Stuck Inside a Mobile with Memphis Blues again lines, your debutante just knows what you need, but I know what you want. Something Ken Marks notes in his review of the song in the Berkshire Sampler as quote, marked by cleverly Dylan-esque turn of phrase an aura or legend that has characterized Robertson's most magnetic compositions. And while the words are shadowed in mystery, Robert Hilburn for the Los Angeles Times said, The saga of Papode Rouge, lyrics are both thoughtful and well-plotted, and the melodies are graceful and inviting. Speaking of melody and music, the song is fantastic. You have two vocals. Rick leads through all the verses and gives a compelling performance. In the chorus, Levon comes in with a high harmony from Richard Manuel. The configuration is an old hat at this point, but don't fix what ain't broke. Helm on the drums is also fun here. He introduces the song with a flurry of hits, accented by Robertson's guitar and Garth's organ. And speaking of organ, Garth is restrained here, less synth layering, more akin to the basement tapes and music from Big Pink than Northern Lights Southern Cross. 
This all crescendos in the last 90 seconds. It's a pure jam, not in a soloist way, but in a tight, funky groove that defines the band so well. As Grail Marcus muses in his Rolling Stone review, Manuel's version of Georgia On My Mind recalls the heart that he put into Whispering Pines almost eight years ago. And as detailed by Helm in his book, quote, Jimmy Carter had been kind enough to receive us in the Georgia governor's mansion when we passed through in Atlanta back in 1974 on Dylan's tour. And now he was running for president against Gerald Ford. We'd been getting calls asking us to help, so we released a single of Georgia On My Mind in Mr. Carter's honor. Richard sang it with the soul factor turned pretty high. On October 30th, 1976, we played Georgia on Saturday Night Live, and a few days later, Jimmy Carter was elected as the President of the United States. Georgia, Georgia, the whole day through. There's that old sweet song That keeps you, Georgia On my mind Oh, Georgia Georgia Magic captured, it made sense to release it on islands for the reason of filling slots and the fact that it was a fantastic rendition. Remember, Manuel had been performing various Ray Charles songs for over a decade. As told by Barney Hoskins in his book, Across the Great Divide, playing on a bill with the Hawks at the Stratford Coliseum in the early summer of 1961, a 17-year-old Richard Manuel opened the set with George on my mind. The song, which had given Ray Charles a number one hit the previous September. It was hard to believe you were listening to a white kid when Manuel launched into the Hoagie Carmichael classic. So spine-tinglingly did he simulate every last pang of Brother Ray's performance. And while we could go on a lot longer about Manuel's voice, the rest of the band is subtle, yet elegant, and their contributions make the song better. Garth Hudson provides a warm blanket of organ that washes over Manuel's voice. The rhythm section of Danko and Helm provide a simple backbeat, Anything busier would take away the nuance. Robertson provides us with his signature guitar work and provides a stirring and stabbing solo. 
The band's rendition of George On My Mind remains one of their most underrated and understated best covers, joining an already long and excellent list of great covers in their catalog. Now, squashed into the later half of the album is Knocking Lost John, a rare lead vocal from Robbie Robertson helped amply by his fellow bandmates. Musically, this song is rather unique, and it makes it worthy of repeat listen. The guitar, in particular, is quite experimental. Robertson uses a series of effects to bend and distort the sound. Robertson's guitar experimentation is joined by Hudson, who provides the meanest accordion playing I've ever heard. If anyone can bring the accordion into rock music, it's Garth Hudson. He doubles his duty with the Lowry organ. He is joined on the bench by Richard Emanuel, who also provides piano. Rick Danko and Levon Helm provide a solid rhythm backing. Helm, in particular, helps aid Robertson's loose and funky guitar parts. Musically is what makes this song interesting. The lyrics are fine as well, the character of John is downtrodden. He's suffering through the Great Depression in the late 1920s. Rather plainly mentioned with the lyric, Back in 1929, it was a living hell. In the chorus line, the Great Depression was going strong. The character is tough. However, Robertson paints the picture of John living a tough life, getting his experiences in schooling, not in the traditional sense, but with words like, Born on the south side. Got my schooling at the pool hall. Again, reaching back into history, in a sense, not uncommon for the band. Definitely more urban of the rough and tumble 20s in the city. 
Ken Marks in his review says, quote, Knocking Lost John does for the struggling man of the Great Depression what the night they drove old Dixie down did for the poor postbellum southern farmer. Now, that might be a very large stretch by most means, but the sentiment is correct. Overall, Knockin' Lost John isn't anything particularly special. The steam is beginning to run out on the second slide of the album, and while the musical arrangement is fresh, Robertson doesn't really offer anything special lyrically or vocally to make the track a standout amongst the others. Islands closes with what Robert Hilburn calls earthy playfulness of living in a dream. This laid-back, funky romper plays to Levon Helm's skill set, as writer Jimmy Nelson mentions in his review, quote, from its impish cadence to its scamps checklist of big dreams and even bigger flirts. In that way, living in a dream reaffirms much of what made the band so reliably involving, even if it never quite succeeds in making you forget those earlier triumphs. And with Helm bellowing out the lead vocal, Rick Danko brings his clear tenor behind for a wonderful harmony, Garth Hudson is in the back with his finest hootenanny accordion and his carnivalish organ playing. He also provides us with a splendid alto saxophone. Robertson provides a solid foundation with his guitar riffing. Living in a Dream is a fine song, however, it's sad that the final studio recording of the original band lineup provides us with a song that isn't much of a bang, rather a whimper. As Nelson muses in his review, Living in a Dream in particular until the very title itself feels bitterly ironic. And Ken Mark states in his 1977 review, quote, The last track, Living in a Dream, resurrects the great, chunky beat of the shape I'm in and whoever whistles that last chorus has provided a happy sad goodbye as the band could possibly offer us.
And with the recording completed, the band took their work to Bernie Grunman to master. Grunman had worked with Steely Dan and Joni Mitchell and would go on to do recordings by Michael Jackson and Prince and had worked as the head at A&M Records' mastering department during much of the 70s. Bob Cato, who had worked for the band for the duration of their career, was brought aboard to design and photograph the album, which included a rather serene landscape shot of the sun setting on the ocean, framed with silhouettes of each band member. The back cover featured a group shot of the band, notably Robbie Robertson wearing a Toronto Maple Leafs jersey. Islands was released on March 15, 1977, and general confusion was still surrounding the band. The last waltz had happened in 1976, but the film and soundtrack weren't out. Thus, the general population had a mixed perspective on what had happened. Did the band call it quits? Are they just a studio group akin to the Beatles? Much of the press was equally as perplexed, and while most reviews were tepid, it was hard to argue the craft was still there. Juan Rodriguez for the Montreal Gazette said, quote, To say that the band's new record Islands is not as good as the previous Northern Light Southern Cross is almost a foregone conclusion. Before adding, The band has found a way to accentuate hillbilly folk song voices within the structure of rock and roll, mixed with a heady dose of rhythm and blues, that has been fully developed as a musical art form and not just as a momentary buzz. That is what distinguishes the band from other rock groups and what makes the quintet such an indispensable master of the genre. And Ron Cruzy for the Rapid City Journal was one to count towards studio band, not a breakup with his review of Islands. Quote, despite the fact that the band was still not, despite the fact that the band will not tour together again, their future looks bright. Islands is lighter and less serious than previous albums, and the members supposedly had a good time making the music. And Robert Hilburn for the Los Angeles Times said, quote, The band's new Islands, the band's new Islands album has much of the craft, but too little of the provocative edge normally associated with the work of America's most respected rock group. Before adding, Islands lacks focus and identity, missing the interaction between songs that made the band's earlier studio collections such richly rewarding portraits. Some reviews were more positive, including Sam Sutherland for High Fidelity, who opens his review with, quote, Islands is a maverick triumph. Islands is a maverick triumph. The ebullient feel that emerges most closely resembles the third album, Stage Fright. And Ken Mark said in his review, quote, Islands is in no way a throwaway effort. If the band has ever affected you in a way measured before, this album will be indispensable to you. And with that, the original incarnation of the band was done. It wasn't executed perfectly, but nothing ever truly is. The original lineup would only play one additional time in 1978, which we will explore at a further date. Otherwise, it would be some six or so years before the guys minus Robertson reunited as the group. The train had finally stopped. Running away from their livelihoods in the band was the preferred choice. It is possible that... Sitting around and pondering would have been too painful. And you begin to wonder what would have happened if they had ironed out their differences and continued on as a unit. Regardless, as many fans, critics, and peers have mentioned, the band was one of the finest groups of musicians that had ever played, and while they may have not gone out exactly as planned, their influence was never diminished. Thank you for listening to The Band A History. 
that was probably the fastest episode I've ever written. Um, you know, the last Waltz episodes, six of them, was kind of like a knot. Like, you had to work through it and untangle it, and it, it was kind of hard. That's what took so long about it. But uh, I just started writing Islands to see how far I would get into it, and I just did it in one evening, basically. Um, Islands is something that I hadn't listened to a ton previously. Uh, I obviously knew all the songs, but it's a good album. It's uneven, but, you know, it, it's really, honestly, almost as good as Cahoots or even Moments of Stage Fright. Uh, there are some good songs here. There is some experimentation. There is some stuff here that you could see where they might have gone if they continued to release albums in the latter part of the 70s into the early 80s. And that's what's intriguing to me. Uh, exploring songs that people don't really know exist because they're only really listening to the first two or three albums. Songs like Right as Rain and Streetwalker, I think, are actually very compelling and interesting songs. Um, one of the interesting parts that I found, too, when researching this episode and looking at what people had to say about it during the 70s was the power of Richard Manuel's voice. I've talked about this online before, and I try to paint a better picture in the podcast but there is definitely a prevailing narrative that Richard kind of wrecked his voice and that's why he's not in the last waltz etc etc and really there's multiple points of reference for this being a complete falsehood uh, one of them is this album some of his finest vocal delivery is on this album listen to let the night fall or write his rain and you can see that he is a potent potent vocalist uh, amongst other things so that was really fun to explore. Uh, but anyways, uh, if you're interested in following the podcast online, uh, we're on all social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at The Band Podcast. If you're interested in supporting the show uh, monetarily, consider going to our Patreon page. That is patreon.com slash thebandahistory. There are multiple tiers. You can contribute. You get early access to all of the episodes and additional content, blogs, things from the archives and other stuff I dig up. Uh, it's a good it's a good place to be, lots of good content. So uh, thank you to all the people who support on Patreon currently. You help make the show possible. I also want to thank our sponsor today, BetterHelp. Uh, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. I'd agreed to talk about BetterHelp because I truly believe if a resource like this was around for people like the band, a lot less pain and suffering would have occurred, and maybe Islands wouldn't have been their last album of the original lineup. The good news is therapy works. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. And a special offer to the Band of History listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at BetterHelp.com theband. That's BetterHelp.com theband. Thank you again to BetterHelp. And that's it for me, folks. Um, thank you for listening to the Band of History. We're going to keep on trucking along into the solo albums and then the reunion years of the band and beyond. So uh, thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next one.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.